My name is Professor Rachel Bodell, and you're listening to The Bible in a Year, the story podcast, where we encounter a living God that is calling us to live a life from, with, and for Him. This podcast is designed to help you listen to the one connected story of the Bible and understand it perhaps just a little bit better by learning from biblical scholars that have helped me. We will read the Bible out loud and explore how the one connected story of the kingdom of God is unfolding and how we fit into that story today. This is day 186, and I'm reading from the NIV version of the Bible, Jeremiah 11 and 12 and Ezekiel 40 through 43. Jeremiah 11. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Listen to the terms of this covenant and tell them to the people of Judah and to those who live in Jerusalem. Tell them that this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Cursed is the one who does not obey the terms of this covenant, the terms I commanded your ancestors when I brought them out of Egypt, out of the iron-smeltering furnace. I said, Obey me and do everything I command you, and you will be my people, and I will be your God. Then I will fulfill the oath I swore to your ancestors to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, the land you possess today. I answered, Amen, Lord. The Lord said to me, Proclaim all these words in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Listen to the terms of this covenant and follow them. From the time I brought your ancestors up from Egypt until today, I warned them again and again, saying, Obey me. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubbornness of their evil hearts. So I brought on them all the curses of the covenant I had commanded them to follow, but that they did not keep. Then the Lord said to me, There is a conspiracy among the people of Judah and those who live in Jerusalem. They have returned to the sins of their ancestors, who refused to listen to my words. They have followed other gods to serve them. Both Israel and Judah have broken the covenant I made with their ancestors. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, I will bring on them a disaster they cannot escape. Although they cry out to me, I will not listen to them. The towns of Judah and the people of Jerusalem will go and cry out to the gods to whom they burn incense, but they will not help them at all when disaster strikes. You, Judah, have as many gods as you have towns, and the altars you have set up to burn incense to that shame god Baal are as many as the streets of Jerusalem. Do not pray for this people or offer any plea or petition for them, because I will not listen when they call to me in the time of their distress." What is my beloved doing in my temple as she, with many others, works out her evil schemes? Can consecrate meat avert your punishment? When you engage in your wickedness, then you rejoice. The Lord called you a thriving olive tree with fruit beautiful in form, but with the roar of a mighty storm, he will set it on fire and its branches will be broken. The Lord Almighty who planned you has decreed disaster for you because the people of both Israel and Judah have done evil and aroused my anger by burning incense to Baal. Because the Lord revealed their plot to me, I knew it, for at that time he showed me what they were doing. I had been like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. I did not realize that they had plotted against me, saying, Let us destroy the tree and its fruit. Let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. But you, Lord Almighty, who judge righteously and test the heart and mind, let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have committed my cause. 
Therefore, this is what the Lord says about the people of Anathoth who are threatening to kill you. Say, do not prophesy in the name of the Lord or you will die by our hands. Therefore, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish them. Their young men will die by the sword, their sons and daughters by famine. Not even a remnant will be left to them because I will bring disaster on the people of Anathoth in the year of their punishment. You are always righteous, Lord, when I bring a case before you, yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faceless live at ease? You have planted them and they have taken root. They grow and bear fruit. You are always on their lips, but far from their hearts. Yet you know me, Lord. You see me and test my thoughts about you. Drag them off like sheep to be butchered. Set them apart for the day of slaughter. How long will the land lie parched and the grass in every field be withered? Because those who live in it are wicked. The animals and birds have perished. Moreover, the people are saying, he will not see what happens to us. If you have raced with men on foot and they have worn you out, how can you compete with horses? If you stumble and save country, how will you manage in the thickets by the Jordan? Your relatives, members of your own family, even they have betrayed you. They have raised a loud cry against you. Do not trust them, though they speak well of you. I will forsake my house, abandon my inheritance. I will give the one I love into the hands of her enemies. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She roars at me, therefore I hate her. Has not my inheritance become to me like a speckled bird of prey? The other birds of prey surround and attack. Go and gather all the wild beasts, bring them to devour. Many shepherds will ruin my vineyard and trample down my field. They will turn my pleasant field into a desolate wasteland. It will be made a wasteland, parched and desolate before me. The whole land will be laid waste because there is no one who cares. Over all the barren heights in the desert, destroyers will swarm. For the sword of the Lord will devour from one end of the land to the other. No one will be safe. They will sow wheat but reap thorns. They will wear themselves out but gain nothing. They will bear the shame of their harvest because of the Lord's fierce anger. This is what the Lord says. As for all my wicked neighbors who seize the inheritance I gave my people Israel, I will uproot them from their lands and I will uproot the people of Judah from among them. But after I uproot them, I will again have compassion and will bring each of them back to their own inheritance and their own country. And if they learn well the ways of my people and swear by my name, saying, As surely as the Lord lives, even as they once taught my people to swear by Baal, then they will establish among my people. But if any nation does not listen, I will completely uproot and destroy it, declares the Lord. Ezekiel 40 In the 25th year of our exile, at the beginning of the year on the 10th of the month, in the 14th year after the fall of the city, on that very day, the hand of the Lord was on me, and He took me there. In visions of God, He took me to the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, on whose south side were some buildings that looked like a city. He took me there, and I saw a man whose appearance was like bronze. He was standing in the gateway with a linen cord and a measuring rod in his hand. The man said to me, Son of man, look carefully and listen closely and pay attention to everything I am going to show you. For that is why you have been brought here. Tell the people of Israel everything you see. I saw a wall completely surrounding the temple area. The length of the measuring rod in the man's hand was six long cubits each of which was a cubit and a handbreadth. He measured the wall. It was one measuring rod thick and one rod high. Then he went to the east gate. He climbed its steps and measured the threshold of the gate. 
It was one rod deep. The alcoves for the guards were one rod long and one rod wide, and the projecting wall between the alcoves were five cubits thick, and the threshold of the gate next to the portico facing the temple was one rod deep. Then he measured the portico of the gateway. It was eight cubits deep, and its jams were two cubits thick. The portico of the gateway faced the temple. Inside the east gate were three alcoves on each side. The three had the same measurements, and the faces of the projecting wall on each side had the same measurements. Then he measured the width of the entrance of the gateway. It was ten cubits, and its length was thirteen cubits. In front of each alcove was a wall one cubit high, and the alcoves were six cubits square. Then he measured the gateway from the top of the rear wall of one alcove to the top of the opposite one. The distance was 25 cubits from one parapet opening to the opposite one. He measured along the faces of the projecting walls all around the inside of the gateway, 60 cubits. The measurement was up to the portico facing the courtyard. The distance from the entrance of the gateway to the far end of its portico was 50 cubits. The alcoves and the projecting walls inside the gateway were surmounted by narrow parapets opening all around, as was the portico. The opening all around faced inward. The faces of the projecting walls were decorated with palm trees. Then he brought me into the outer court. There I saw some rooms and a pavement that had been constructed all around the courtyard. There were 13 rooms along the pavement. It abutted the sides of the gateway and was as wide as they were long. This was the lower pavement. Then he measured the distance from the inside of the lower gateway to the outside of the inner court. It was a 100 cubits on the east side as well as on the north. Then he measured the length and width of the north gate, leading into the outer courtyard. Its alcoves, three on each side, its projecting walls, and its portico had the same measurements as those of the first gateway. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its opening, its portico, and its palm tree decorations had the same measurements as those of the gate facing east. Seven steps led up to it. It was a portico opposite them. There was a gate to the inner court facing the north gate, just as there was on the east. He measured the one gate to the opposite one. It was a hundred cubits. Then he led me to the south side, and I saw the south gate. He measured its jams and its portico, and they had the same measurement as the others. The gateway and its portico had narrow openings all around. Like the openings of the others, it was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Seven steps led up to it, with its portico opposite them. It had a palm tree decoration on the faces of the projecting walls on each side. The inner courts also had a gate facing south, and he measured from this gate to the outer gate on the south side. It was a hundred cubits. Then he brought me into the inner court through the south gate, and he measured the south gate. It had the same measurements as the others. Its alcoves, its projecting walls, and its portico had the same measurements as the others. The gateway and its portico had the openings all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. The portico of the gateway around the inner court were 25 cubits wide and 5 cubits deep. Its portico faced the outer court, palm tree decorating its jams, and the eight steps led up to it. Then he brought me to the inner court on the east side and he measured the gateway. It had the same measurements as the others. Its alcoves, its projecting walls, and its portico had the same measurements as the others. The gateway in its portico had openings all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. Its portico faced the outer court, palm trees decorating the jams on either side, and eight steps led up to it. Then he brought me to the north gate and measured it. It had the same measurement as the others, as did its alcoves, its projecting walls, and its portico, and it had openings all around. It was 50 cubits long and 25 cubits wide. 
its portico faced the outer court, palm tree decorated with jams on either side, and eight steps led up to it. A room with a doorway by the portico in each of the inner gateways where the burnt offerings were washed. In the portico of the gateway were two tables on each side on which the burnt offerings, sin offerings, and guilt offerings were slaughtered. By the outside wall of the portico of the gateway near the steps at the entrance of the north gateway were two tables and the other side of the steps were two tables. So there were four tables on one side of the gateway and four on the other, eight tables in all on which the sacrifices were slaughtered. There were also four tables of dressed stone for the burnt offerings, each a cubit and a half long, a cubit and a half wide, and a cubit high. On them were placed the utensils for slaughtering the burnt offerings and the other sacrifices, and double-pronged hooks, each a handbreadth long, were attached to the wall all around. The tables were for the flesh of the offerings. Outside the inner gate, within the inner court, were two rooms, one at the side of the north gate and facing south, and another at the side of the south gate facing north. He said to me, The room facing south is for the priests who guard the temple, and the room facing north is for the priests who guard the altar. These are the sons of Zadok, who are the only Levites who may draw near to the Lord to minister before him. Then he measured the court. It was a square, a hundred cubits long and a hundred cubits wide, and the altar was in front of the temple. He brought me to the portico of the temple and measured the jams of the portico. They were five cubits wide on either side. The width of the entrance was 14 cubits, and its projecting wall were three cubits wide on either side. The portico was 20 cubits wide and a 12 cubits from front to back. It was reached by a flight of stairs, and there were pillars on each side of the jams. Then the man brought to me the main hall and measured the jams. The width of the jams was six cubits on each side. The entrance was 10 cubits wide and the projecting wall on each side of it were five cubits wide. He also measured the main hall. It was 40 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. Then he went into the inner sanctuary and measured the jams of the entrance. Each was two cubits wide. The entrance was six cubits wide and the projecting wall on each side of it were seven cubits wide. And he measured the length of the inner sanctuary. It was 20 cubits and its width was 20 cubits across the end of the main hall. He said to me, this is the most holy place. Then he measured the wall of the temple. It was six cubits thick and each side room around the temple was four cubits wide. The side rooms were on three levels, one above another. 30 on each level. There were ledges all around the wall of the temple to serve a support for the side rooms, so that the support were not inserted into the wall of the temple. The side rooms all around the temple were wider at each successive level. The structure surrounding the temple was built in ascending stages, so that the room widening as one went upward. A stairway went from the lowest floor to the top floor through the middle floor. I saw that the temple had a raised base all around it, forming the foundation of the side rooms. It was the length of the rod, six long cubits. The outer wall of the side rooms was five cubits thick. The open areas between the side room of the temple and the priest's room was 20 cubits wide all around the temple. There were entrances to the side room from the opening area, one on the north and another on the south, and the base adjoining the opening areas was five cubits wide all around. The building facing the temple courtyard on the west side was 70 cubits wide. The wall of the building was 5 cubits thick all around and its length was 90 cubits. Then he measured the temple. It was 100 cubits long. And the temple courtyard and the building with its walls were also 100 cubits long. The width of the temple courtyard on the east, including the front of the temple, was 100 cubits. Then he measured the length of the building facing the courtyard at the rear of the temple, including its galleries on each side. It was 100 cubits. 
the main hall, the inner sanctuary, and the portico facing the courtyard, as well as the thresholds and the narrow windows and galleries around the three of them. Everything beyond and including the threshold was covered with wood. The floor, the wall of the windows, and the windows were covered. In the space above the outside of the entrance to the inner sanctuary and on the walls at regular intervals all around the inner and outer sanctuary were carved cherubim and palm trees. Palm trees alternated with cherubim. Each cherub had two faces, the face of a human being toward the palm tree on one side and the face of a lion toward the palm tree on the other. They were carved all around the whole temple, from the floor to the area above the entrance. Cherubim and palm trees were carved on the wall of the main hall. The main hall had a rectangular door frame, and on the one at the front of the most holy place was similar. There was a wooden altar three cubits high and two cubits square. Its corners, its base, and its sides were of wood. The man said to me, This is the table that is before the Lord. Both the main hall and the most holy place had double doors. Each door had two leaves, two hinges, leaves, each door. On the doors of the main hall were carved cherubim and palm trees, like those carved on the walls, and there was a wooden overhang on the front of the portico. On the side wall of the portico was narrow windows with palm trees carved on each side. The side rooms of the temple were also overhangs. Then the man led me northward into the outer court and brought me to the rooms opposite the temple courtyard and opposite the outer wall on the north side. The buildings whose door faced north was 100 cubits long and 50 cubits wide, both in the section 20 cubits. From the inner courtyard and in the section opposite of the pavement of the outer courtyard, gallery faced gallery at the three levels. In the front of the room was an inner passageway, 10 cubits wide and 100 cubits long. Their doors were on the north. Now the open rooms were narrower, for the galleries took more space from them than from the rooms on the lower and middle floors of the building. The rooms on the top floor had no pillars as the court had, so they were smaller in floor space than those on the lower and middle floors. There was an outer wall parallel to the rooms and the outer court. It extended in front of the rooms for 50 cubits. While the rows of rooms on the side next to the outer court was 50 cubits long, the row on the side nearest the sanctuary was 100 cubits long. The lower rooms had an entrance on the east side on, as one enters them from the outer court. On the south side, along the level of the wall of the outer court, adjoining the temple courtyard and opposite the outer wall, were rooms with a passageway in front of them. These were like the rooms on the north. They had the same length and width with similar exits and dimensions. Similar to the doorway on the north were the doorway of the rooms on the south. There was a doorway at the beginning of the passageway that was parallel to the corresponding wall extending eastward but which one enters the room. Then he said to me, the north and south rooms facing the temple courtyard are the priest's rooms where the priests who approach the Lord will eat the most holy offerings. There they will put the most holy offerings, the grain offerings, the sin offerings, and the guilt offerings, for the place is holy. Once the priests enter the holy precinct, they are not to go into the outer courtyard until they leave behind the garments in which they minister, for these are holy. They are to put on their clothes before they go near the places that are for the people." When he had finished measuring what was inside the temple area, he led them out to the east gate and measured the area all around. He measured the east side with the measuring rod. It was 500 cubits. He measured the north side. It was 500 cubits by measuring rod. He measured the south side. It was 500 cubits by the measuring rod. Then he turned to the west side and measured it. It was 500 cubits by the measuring rod. So he measured the area on all four sides. It had a wall around it. 500 cubits long and 500 cubits wide, the separate, the holy from the common. Then the man brought to me the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing water, and the land was radiant with his glory. 
the vision I saw was like a vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and like the visions I had seen by the Kibar River, and I fell face down. The glory of the Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner courtroom, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple. While the man was standing behind me, I heard some speaking to me from inside the temple. He said, Son of man, this is the place of my throne and the place for the soles of my feet. This is where I will live among the Israelites forever. The people of Israel will never again defile my holy name, neither they nor their kings by their prostitution and the funeral offerings, for their kings are at their death. When they place their threshold next to my threshold and their doorposts beside my doorposts, with only a wall between me and them, they defiled my holy name by their detestable practices. So I destroyed them in my anger. Now let them put away from me their prostitution and the funeral offerings for their kings, and I will live among them forever. Son of man, describe the temple to the people of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their sins. Let them consider its perfection. And if they were ashamed of all they had done, make known to them the design of the temple, its arrangements, its exits and entrances, its whole design and all its regulations and laws. Write these down before them so that they may be faithful to its designs and follow all its regulations. This is the law of the temple. All the surrounding area on top of the mountain will be most holy. Such is the law of the temple. These are the great measurements of the altar and long cubits. The cubit being a cubit and a handbreadth. Its gutter is a cubit deep and a cubit wide, with a rim of one span around the edge. And this is the height of the altar, from the gutter on the ground up to the lower ledge that goes around the altar and it's two cubits high, and the ledge is a cubit wide. From this lower ledge to the upper ledge that goes around the altar, it is four cubits high, and that ledge is also a cubit wide. Above that, the altar hearth is four cubits high, and four horns project upward from the hearth. The altar hearth is square, twelve cubits long and twelve cubits wide. The upper ledge also is square, 14 cubits long and 14 cubits wide. All around the altar is a gutter of one cubit with a rim of a half cubit. These steps of the altar faced east. Then he said to me, son of man, this is what the sovereign Lord says. These will be the regulations for sacrificing burnt offerings and splashing blood against the altar when it is built. You are to give a young bull as a sin offering to the Levitical priests of the family of Zadok, who come near to a minister before me, declares the Sovereign Lord. You are to take some of its blood and put it on the four horns of the altar, and on the four corners of the upper ledge and all around the rim, and so purify the altar and make atonement for it. You are to take the bull for the sin offering and burn it in the designated part of the temple area outside the sanctuary." On the second day, you are to offer a male goat without defection for a sin offering, and the altar is to be purified as it was purified with the bull. When you have finished purifying it, you are to offer a young bull and a ram from the flock, both without defect. You are to offer them before the Lord, and the priests are to sprinkle salt on them and to sacrifice them as a burnt offering to the Lord. For seven days, you are to provide a male goat daily for a sin offering. You are also to provide a young bull and a ram from the flock, born without defect. For seven days they are to make atonement for the altar and cleanse it. Thus they will dedicate it. At the end of those days, from the eight days on, the priests are to present your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings on the altar. Then I will accept you, declares the Sovereign Lord. Let's do a quick orientation. We're reading in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah was a prophet, a messenger of God in the southern kingdom of Judah, in the capital city, Jerusalem. 
He was called by God to warn the Israelites of severe consequences of breaking their covenant with God through a dislocated heart that idolized and worshiped other gods, which also led to defective moral behaviors described as oppressive, brutal, and unjust. Jeremiah foretold that Babylon would come to destroy Jerusalem and take the remaining people into exile, and this became a reality which Jeremiah witnessed, the siege, destruction, and exile. Dr. Mackey explains how chapters 1 through 24 of Jeremiah consist of writings before the exile. We have been reading a series of indictments and accusations and metaphor and directly and repeatedly. Israel's corrupt leaders, the priests, kings, and prophets are also, and very much so, accused of abandoning the Torah and covenant, which resulted in rampant social injustice, the exploitation of vulnerable communities, widows, immigrants, and orphans. And these leaders are described as not even caring not while they were doing it, and not after they were being called to take account for it. Biblical scholar Matthew Patton describes how in this part of the story we read in Jeremiah 11 and 12, Jeremiah's preaching about the Israelites' broken covenant evokes a hostile response from the people in his very own hometown, Anathoth. A conspiracy arises against Jeremiah in chapter 11 and leads to what Patton describes as an interchange between the prophet and his god Yahweh. Patton also describes how this might give Jeremiah a taste of what God has been reciting and receiving from the southern kingdom's hands himself. The people of Anathoth want to silence Jeremiah. Yahweh makes Jeremiah aware of this plight in verse 11, 10, and Jeremiah prays for vengeance. But as Patton notes, Jeremiah does not defend his own innocence or take vengeance into his own hands, but commits to God what he's feeling and what he desires. Note, God is not a genie and isn't there to do what he wants, but he is wisdom, knowledge, justice, and righteousness itself. And Jeremiah is deferring what he wants to God. In this case, God's justice affirms what Jeremiah wants. But also notice that this wasn't enough for Jeremiah. In chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, he wanted justice now. He's mad, like we are sometimes, as Jeremiah stated that the wicked seem to be allowed to thrive and prosper. Patton describes Yahweh's response as sobering, because Jeremiah had only begun to endure the hardship of Yahweh's delayed judgment. Remember, this part of the story is before Jeremiah witnessed the siege, destruction, and exile. That's coming later in the story. It's like growing weary when an endurance race has just begun. And as Patton reminds us, Jeremiah does continue to face wrongdoing by his own people, and he did not see every justice enacted or made right in his lifetime. But this does not mean God is not acting and moving in the larger story. As God does for us sometimes, he did for Jeremiah, asking us to step back into him and consider the bigger story, the rescue and redemption mission at hand. Like Jeremiah, Yahweh has been wronged by the very group of people he called into a close relationship with him, his family. That's what it meant when we read Yahweh's own wife, which is a metaphor to the southern kingdom of Judah. Chapter 12, verse 8 is describing how the southern kingdom lifted up her voice against him like a roaring lion. The affection turns loathing, and when Yahweh lets go, leaving the southern kingdom to their enemies, they still do not repent. So this comparison is being made between Jeremiah and the betrayal of his hometown and the betrayal of the southern kingdom of Judah to Yahweh. 
Yet, while Jeremiah wants vengeance, both Father Mike Schmitz and Matthew Patton point out how in chapter 12, verse 15, God will still, and I just have to pause at the word still, offer grace and compassion. In the end, it will triumph, and not just for Judah, but also for all nations. God will pluck them up, and He will restore them again. He will teach us, we will learn how to walk and live in His name, to bear His name, live with Shema in Shalom. This is what the way to life looks like. Everything else is a fast or slow drift back into the nothingness. Father Mike Schmitz describes this part of the story in Jeremiah as a brace for impact. If they weren't willing to take the easy medicine and the correction and the warnings and the accusations, then the hard medicine, surgery is coming. And in this case, it doesn't look like there's going to be any anesthetics. In Ezekiel, Remember, God is giving a new heart and a new spirit to the individual and a new temple for himself to dwell in their midst. In this imagery where he will dwell with us individually and we know from the New Testament, our bodies are described as temples where Jesus made atonement for us, giving us a new heart and a new spirit. And with this physical temple on a mountain seems to be pulling together the Garden of Eden story, the Mount Sinai story, and the David dynasty story. It's grace again through redemption and restoration. In chapter 43, Ezekiel witnesses the glory of the Lord filling his temple, and as we will see later, the call for Israel's renewed worship, the call back to our right relationship in a special place where God dwells with us, and we are recommissioned as vice regents to be blessed, become a kingdom of priests, and bless others, and care for his creation. Biblical scholar Michael Lawrence, with a doctorate from Cambridge and MDiv from Gordon-Conwell Theology Seminary, explains how to us, a design plan for a new temple isn't that riveting. Yet to Israel, this was the symbol of their identity. Think about national or personal symbols, which we know and understand to be symbolic of identity. Maybe to an American, the American flag. Note the difference too, where in chapter 43, God is calling for humility, a deference to his leadership and repentance for seeking to dislocate his God-honored, his godhood and place ourselves there. Notice how the most holy place in this account is not an inner room, but the entire temple mount. Ezekiel's temple is much larger than Solomon's when we compare it to 1 Kings chapter 6. Michael Lawrence describes how Revelations 21 verse 15 points back to this Ezekiel passage where it is not the temple being measured, but the whole of the heavenly city. The temple in Revelations chapter 21 verse 22 is the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb. There is no physical structure to hold or contain his presence. It fills the new heavens and the new earth. And as Michael Lawrence notes, this part of the story in Ezekiel offers gospel glimpses, whole Bible connections, and clear thinking of God's story, the story, which is still unfolding today. I also love how Ezekiel points to the perfection of this new temple and how we are not to compete with it or make our own alongside it. Pray for me, I'm praying for you. My prayer is this, found in Philippians 1, 9 through 11, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. 
filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. What is this fruit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Galatians 5, 22 through 24. See you tomorrow.